lives on my street. Folks, you may have heard that there's a Michael and Us Patreon. That's right, if you like these free episodes, believe it or not, there are even more episodes that are not free. Some of those episodes include a recent one about the acclaimed wrestling documentary Beyond the Mat. That was a patron's choice episode. We also did an episode looking back at the comedy of George Carlin. Does it hold up? Does it not hold up? We will be the ones to decide. Speaking of does it hold up or not, we watched the 1998 Jackie Chan, Chris Tucker classic, Rush Hour. Yes, folks, there is a political reading for Rush Hour. On the Patreon, you can also find some really interesting interviews. Uh, My latest ones are with the historian Patrick Wyman, who you may know from the Tides of History podcast. We talked about the sociology and the political economy of beautiful boaters. I also spoke with the British writer and author George Monbiot about the proliferation of conspiracy theories and some of his writings on neoliberalism. It's quite an eclectic mix of things you can find on our Patreon. You also get access to our back catalog of, I don't know, what is it, Will, about 200 episodes or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to put an exact number to it. I mean, <laughs> I don't want to disappoint anyone, but it, folks, it's a lot. As, uh, do you know, did you know that like four years ago, we did a Patreon episode about Paths of Glory? You can only find that one place. It's on the Patreon. So. <laughs> Pokemon go to patreon.com slash Michael and us. Should we get on with the show, Will? Let's watch this drive. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And remember, my friend... Future events such as these will affect you in the future. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. And now, for the first time, we are bringing to you the full story of what happened on that fateful day. We are bringing you all the evidence, based only on the secret testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal, the incidents, the places... My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. My friend. Can your heart stand the shocking facts about the Michael and Us podcast? I'm Will Sloan, here as always with... I'm Luke Savage. Uh, Welcome back, everyone. And if you're familiar with uh, the source material for this week's show, I'm sure you'll be very impressed with that. And if not, we've probably got off on the wrong footing with this week's episode. I don't think so. I think think everyone will like that. There's something in there for everyone. Like, it, it makes you think, you know, it's like future events really will affect us in the future. Well, folks, you know, this is one I'm actually quite excited about because it's an episode uh, that I've been advocating for a long time, years, actually. You know, right before we started recording, uh, we had our weekly technical difficulties uh, in which we experimented with Will's podcasting microphone. You know, we're four years into this podcast. You'd think we'd have figured this out by now. Uh, But his microphone has a number of settings. Uh, There's the bi-directional setting, which in theory captures us both. There's the omnidirectional setting. Take a can of your gasoline. (laughs) That's the computer. And take a trail of that gasoline, and that's the microphone. <laughs> there might be some other settings. Those are the two we tend to use. And, uh, and, it's this, and the same goes for this podcast. I would say most of the episodes conceptually are kind of bi-directional. You get a little bit of film uh, from him. You get a little bit of politics from me. 
But periodically, you know, uh, we take a more unidirectional approach. Sometime in the summer, I don't know, could have been six weeks ago, could have been six months ago. I honestly have no idea. Might have not even been the summer. Will picked my brain about Tony Benn. Uh, we watched the documentary Against the Tide. Uh, this week, we're kind of uh, turning the tables a little bit. We're talking about my Tony Benn. <laughs> His name is Ed Wood. Right. So uh, for those who don't know, my co-host, Will Sloan, is a scholar of many things, uh, but probably none more than Ed Wood, who, if you know him at all, you probably know from the early 90s uh, eponymously titled Tim Burton film, which is a lot of fun and is a movie that uh, you know both of us appreciate. But let me tell you, watching any Ed Wood film with Will Sloan is like watching it you know, with the director commentary <laughs> there are so many strands that will plucked out of this movie uh you know the extras in this movie he knew their whole backstories <laughs> will has actually spent a lot of time reading edward's fiction because uh-huh. you know he was only able to make what was it six or seven feature films well 10 if you count the porn films <laughs> 10 if you count the porn films but he wrote what was it like 90 pulp novels or something like yeah, that? yeah i think i believe it is over 100 and you can get some of them on amazon right now if jeff Bezos is to make money, you should support him for putting out all that Ed Wood fiction on his platform. Probably few people uh, in the world have read as much of Ed Wood's fiction as uh, as my co-host here. So this one was a real treat to watch. Killer and Drag's a good one. I liked uh, I, I like The Only House. I recommend that. Well, A Taste of Things to Come. Uh, we'll get into our movie in a few minutes. I want to throw forward uh, first to what I think will be our next episode. Uh, certainly a subject we're going to tackle in the near future. And that's the Sopranos prequel, which just came out, uh, The Many Saints of Newark. Now, by the time you're hearing this, uh, I will have a review of The Many Saints of Newark up at Jack I have a lot more to say about it. I want to talk about it some more. Three bags of popcorn. (laughs) Yeah, three plates of gabagool. Anyway, I'm not going to spoil that conversation, but in preparation for watching The Many Saints of Newark, I've also been revisiting The Sopranos. And as a result, these past few weeks, I've really had Sopranos on the brain. Now, the thing that strikes me every time I rewatch The Sopranos, and I've lost count whether this is my fifth or sixth viewing of it, But what's amazing is how you always notice new details that you've either forgotten or you never noticed the first time. There are too many of these to recount, but on my recent viewing of an episode, I think in the second season, though I could be wrong about that, there's this scene, this will be a spoiler for Will, because somehow he's only, uh, you know, made it, what, midway through the second season or something. No, I made it to the end, and I'm really tired of this harassment campaign that you've been waging against me. Well, the thing is, uh, you hadn't watched the show at all, and I uh, incited Michael and us nation to you know storm the capital and, and yeah, get you to yeah. get you to watch uh, the show and that worked so the lesson here is that bullying works targeted it's, harassment it's going to continue until uh, until you've seen the rest of the show so we can you know talk about it in the same kind of magisterial way we're about to talk about ed wood those are <laughs> those are my terms here there's no there, there will be no conditional yeah, ha- surrender ha- hang on hang on <laughs> Anyway, you notice so many details when you revisit episodes of The Sopranos. And there's this really important scene, as I said, possibly in the second season, could be in the third, I've already forgotten, where Carmela goes to visit first a Jewish therapist and second a Catholic priest. And she's basically asking for advice about her marriage. She's completely racked by guilt because of the way her husband makes money, because of her own complicity in his lifestyle. And I realized that I'd completely misremembered this sequence because in my memory of it uh, the therapist tells her take the children and, and get out 
I won't take your blood money. Like he won't even take, you know, she offers to pay him. He won't even take it. He tells her, well, my husband's basically a good man. And he says nothing about, you know, what you've told me makes him sound like a good man, something like that. And then she goes to this, uh, this priest. And in my recollection of the scene with the priest, he tells her divorce is out of the question. And that's basically it. You know, in the world of Sopranos, a kind of vulgarized Catholicism, you know, often functions, you know, it, it's kind of the structuring ideology of this world. People go and confess and they expunge their sins or whatever, and then they just keep on living, you know, the same life they were living before. Meanwhile, the church itself is kind of tied up in like taking donations from these people to fund their parades or whatever. The whole thing is totally hypocritical. You know, one of my favorite side characters in The, in the Sopranos is uh, Father Intentola, the priest, you know, who pretends that he's trying to save, you know, mob wives' souls. But he's basically just a sexually repressed guy who's looking for an excuse to get into the homes of women who are in unhappy marriages. And one of my favorite scenes in the show is when Carmela calls him out on that. Anyway, I'd completely misremembered this scene where Carmela goes to talk to the priest because he does indeed tell Carmela not to get a divorce. You know, divorce is completely out of the question. But what I'd completely forgotten, she repeats this line about how her husband's basically a good man, and I'd completely forgotten that the priest ultimately tells Carmela to try to love what's good in her husband and to forgo those things that are connected to this criminal lifestyle. And the camera kind of pans to this sapphire ring or this expensive ring that she's wearing. She kind of covers it up guiltily. And I don't know if I'd never noticed this detail on previous viewings or if I'd just completely forgotten it. But what's really striking here, you know, given Carmela's obvious, uh, you know, ultimately she rejects both of these suggestions. What's really striking about uh, this sequence is that both the therapist and the priest are offering Carmela what are at least internally consistent moral frameworks. Obviously as the viewer, you're much more in sympathy with the therapist because he's giving her kind of the rational secular instructions. But I'd completely forgotten that what the priest says actually makes a great deal of sense too. Anyway, this is a kind of little detail you notice on re-watching The Sopranos. And I know the show is absolutely everywhere right now, but if you've never seen it, you know, I'm not gonna bully you in the way that, uh, you know, me and a portion of our listenership have bullied my co-host to watch it. But uh, it's a great show and you should definitely watch it. I'm very proud. Whatever else happens, you made a movie, Christopher. Nobody can take that away. 100 years from now, we're dead and gone. People will be watching this fucking thing. There's a news story in Canada right now, which I wanted to bring up, in large part because it concerns my own political role model, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. <laughs> this is a story that I don't- can I, can I just say before we go further that one of the movies we flirted with watching tonight was Red Green's Duct Tape Forever. <laughs> which we'll do at some point. And actually what's funny about that is, you know, we, we weren't sure what we we're gonna do for this week's show. And so, you know, we, we scrolled through a couple of things. We were like, oh, The Dark Knight. We uh, thought about The Dark Knight I, just because we thought it would be fun to watch. But isn't that a bit hack to do The Dark Knight at this late date? Yeah, neither of us had the energy for an art film. And then, you know, Will suggested a bunch of kind of right-wing law and order movies. And I'm like, what are we going to say about any of these things that we haven't already said about, like, various <laughs> movies with Charles Bronson in them? <laughs> but those tend to be the fun movies. I mean... <laughs> I wanted, I, I was in the mood to be entertained tonight. Anyway, we'll do this. Uh, it's so funny to say the sentence on Mike because if you're not Canadian, you'll have absolutely no idea what the fuck we're talking about. We wanted this, this movie featuring the quintessential Canadian character Red Green in his movie Duct Tape Forever, <laughs> which is up there in a canon of films that are dear to, I think, Will and me both, uh, including Score, a hockey musical, which you wrote a, uh, a review of. Well, I used to write a column for the long departed AV Club Toronto 
well. That's right. The AV Club used to have a Toronto branch. Back in the day, about 10 years ago, I had a column called Canuck Busters, <laughs> where it was sardonic <laughs> reviews of Canadian aspiring blockbusters, like movies that were made in Canada that were supposed to be big hits. Well, well, I think we should check in on on uh, that one, on Score a Hockey Musical, and see if it's aspirations, uh, see where those ended up. Um, there's another movie in this vein. Honestly, we should probably just do an episode. We can do like a trilogy, you know. We'll, we'll call the episode Remember Canuck Busters. <laughs> that's right. That column that swept the nation. <laughs> there's another movie that's like the, the curling movie. Uh, Men with Brooms. Men with Brooms. And... The thing that was kind of selling me on doing this red green duct tape forever episode, the opportunity to tell the story about uh, the time Will and I tried and mostly failed to rent uh, men with brooms. We went from video store to video <laughs> store. This was over 10 years ago, trying to find a copy. This was an embarrassingly long time ago. Uh, we were almost laughed out of various video stores. <laughs> the fucking hipster clerks thought it was very funny that we wanted to watch Men With Brooms. I feel like Will and I initially were kind of taking it in turns to ask the people behind the counter if they had the movie. And at a certain point, I just lost my will to live. And Will went up and popped the question, his tone getting more and more embarrassed with each uh, each passing time. Now, I think if memory serves, we did eventually find it, but it wasn't available for rental, so we had to buy it. <laughs> Am I remembering that right? Oh, man. Anyway, we're not going to spend too much time on uh, politics or Canada today, but there is this story that's kind of on the face of it, a very tabloidy story, but I think is worth discussing uh, about Justin Trudeau. If you've been listening to our recent episodes, you'll know Canada just had a federal election, which produced this notably very uh, indecisive result. The liberals kind of called this opportunistic early election, hoping for a majority government, and they didn't get it. The parliament that we have now, or I guess about to be sworn in, I'm not sure if it's been sworn in yet, looks almost exactly the same within the single digits, the same as the last parliament we just had. But late last week, something happened that, for me anyway, had real kind of last days of the regime vibes about it. Last Thursday was the first inaugural National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. This is an official public holiday to honor the victims and also the survivors of Canada's genocidal residential schools program. This is something that's uh, been put on the books during the current Liberal administration. And uh, last week, for reasons that are completely beyond me, well, actually, they're not beyond me, the Prime Minister decided to spend this day at a kind of holiday estate in uh, Tofino, which is a kind of beachfront area of uh, Western Canada, British Columbia. The story was made much worse by the fact that Trudeau's official itinerary said that he was having private meetings or something like that. And of course, the media caught up with him on the beach. The Vancouver Sun had a story today. They went and found the place that uh, the Trudeau family was staying at, which is listed on Sotheby's International for uh, just under $19 million. It's a beachfront estate that, among other things, boasts a servant's quarters. <laughs> So in the terminology of kind of political strategists and consultants, this is very bad optics, folks. Now, the reason I bring up the story is because I actually think class, which is the most obvious angle uh, with which to understand a figure like Justin Trudeau, has been completely expunged or largely expunged from the narrative around him. 
For me, all of the moments in Trudeau's career that really stand out are these ones where he's kind of trying to talk to ordinary people or where he's engaged in, you know, he's having these moments that are supposed to be these kind of populist moments where he's kind of with the people and his patrician background just can never help coming through. Like there's one that I think about again and again where the billing was like the prime minister is one-on-one with 10 ordinary Canadians. And one of the people that he was talking to, I think this was in 2017, something like that. I wrote about it at the time, was a guy who I think was about 58 years old. He lived in London, Ontario, and he'd been laid off from a manufacturing job. And I, I can't remember, he had either one precarious job or two And he had, you know, I think no pension to speak of or a bad pension. He was going to have to work past retirement age. Really awful situation, you know, very typical situation facing all kinds of Canadian workers that age. And his question to Trudeau was a very simple one. It had to do with, you know, raising the minimum wage. Trudeau proceeded to recite this series of, you know, Chamber of Commerce talking points about how, you know, raising the minimum wage can often hurt the very people it's supposed to help, that kind of thing. And the outlet I worked at uh, when this story happened, we clipped for the thumbnail Trudeau's expression as he's midway through this, you know, recitation of these Chamber of Commerce talking points. And this kind of patronizing smirk that he has on his face is just one for the ages. He's got all kinds of moments like this. And these moments have always been very important to me because the whole Trudeau shtick since 2015, right at the outset especially, it was always billed as this kind of like, you know, faintly popular. It was like populism, but it was respectable. You know, there was something for everybody. Establishment voices loved it because they knew it was kind of safe. But then also there was this claim that it represented, you know, some kind of left populist thing. You know, I followed the global press at the time of Trudeau's victory. And there was all this kind of stuff about how like a Bernie Sanders has been elected in Canada. I mean, in all seriousness, I'm not making this up. The Trudeau government, I think more than any other Western government, has really successfully branded itself as champions of the middle class. This has been their whole branding. Every single one of their budgets, you know, has this awful phrase, which honestly I'd empty out my entire savings account to never hear again, which is, you know, their their kind of, uh, you know, popular unit that they're supposed, supposedly delivering for is, quote, the middle class and those working hard to join it, which is such a painfully focused grouped phrase. I hate absolutely everything about it, but it's always been an important part of the story for me that this government is fronted by, first of all, a guy who holidays on private islands and $19 million oceanfront estates that have servants' quarters. And for the longest time, the kind of, uh, you know, second most important figure in this government was the finance minister, Bill Morneau, who's a Bay Street guy. A very typical thing in Westminster cabinet governments is you make the finance minister like a former banker or somebody with a background in business. And that's the way of winking to, you know, the markets that like, look, we might say this faintly populist stuff in the press or whatever. We don't mean any of it. We're not going to raise your taxes or whatever. You know, and funnily enough, when they first came into office, the liberals had all this stuff about how they were going to close these absurd loopholes that uh, CEOs especially use where they get to uh, not pay a full rate of tax on stock options, capital gains, things like that. They obviously uh, didn't close any of those loopholes. And back in the day, I looked into it I remember looking at official correspondence, you know, kind of things that like people who were lobbying the government sent the finance minister. And as I recall, a lot of the correspondence addressed him in this very familiar way by his first name. And when the government backed down on this promise to close all these loopholes, uh, their official explanation was, well, uh, we talked to the business sector and they tell us this is a legitimate form of compensation. So we're going to keep it. 
In other words, you know, reading between the lines of it, the finance minister basically talked to some of his golf buddies and they said, please don't raise my taxes. And guess what? Uh, they didn't. So I'm not really sure how to conclude this, but I feel like the, uh, you know, Trudeau Tofino affair, as I said, has real kind of last days of the regime vibes you know, Mary Antoinette leaving the Versailles Palace for the last time or whatever. But in retrospect, I just find it very perplexing that the liberals were able to get away with this whole kind of soft populist shtick, given who these people that, uh, you know, have fronted for them, especially Trudeau himself, kind of think and, and talk and behave. And I think perhaps that should be a clue to the Canadian left. It is safe to state that the grandchildren of some of the people in this theater will not be born on Earth. They come from the bowels of hell, a transformed race of walking dead, zombies guided by a master plan for complete domination of the Earth. Plan 9 from outer space. Starring the most frightmarish cast ever, Bella Lugosi, the seductive vampira, and Thor Johnson as the Walking Dead. Turn off your electro gun! No! No! Stop it, Dennis! I can't get it, it's jammed! Grab him, you fool! Bullets bounce off their bodies. Rockets, missiles, jets cannot stop their death ships. What earthly power can stop this terror? For a glimpse of things to come, see this blast of screen suspense. For it could be happening right now. So, uh, it's hard to know where even to begin this one. We watched the Ed Wood film Plan 9 from Outer Space, which is a movie that I think before Tommy Wiseau's The Room, you know, for several decades before that, this was the movie that had the sort of Time Magazine official billing as like, you know, trademark symbol, the worst movie ever. Now, as I said, watching this film uh, with Will, you know, is watching it with a true scholar of not just Plan 9 from Outer Space, but Ed Wood's entire corpus. It's hard to know where to even begin because we had to keep pausing the movie so that Will could fill me in on various details about like where the extras ended up or didn't end up. Throw me a cast member. I can give you a biography <laughs> on anyone. I mean, it, I know everything uh, there is to know about this movie. I mean, we had so much fun watching this. It hit the perfect sweet spot between something that was fun and easy. You know, it wasn't an art film, but also something that we might actually have something original to say about. Um, maybe the best place to start off uh, before we even get to the movie is for those who don't know Ed Wood. I mean, how would you characterize his career? Who is Ed Wood? And, you know, why are you so interested in him? Well, he is definitely one of my favorite filmmakers. He was crowned by a popular book 40 years ago as the worst director of all time. People who have seen the Tim Burton film will have a sense of the place that he fills in the cultural imaginary. But he was a striver, a wannabe, a sort of Hollywood bottom feeder whose best work was done in the 1950s. He worked in the lower rungs of Hollywood for sort of uh, the drive-in and the grindhouse studios, and he also made independent films. His best-known films include Glenner Glendo, which is a sort of a pioneering exploitation film about cross-dressing. Uh, the key creative alliance that he had in his early career was the elderly and ailing Bela Lugosi 
who of course famously played Dracula, was the definitive screen Dracula, but by the 1950s had really fallen on hard times. The two of them made a couple of movies together, but you know, Ed Wood was regarded in his time by his contemporaries as kind of a loser. If you were a B filmmaker, if you were working in exploitation films, you looked down on Ed Wood because he was several rungs below you. Roger Corman would not have time for Ed Wood. That's kind of where Ed Wood ranked. And I mean, I love Ed Wood. I love almost everything Ed Wood ever made. Uh, Against all odds, he did have a unique vision. He did have a personal style. The sort of bad dialogue in an Ed Wood movie is bad dialogue that is unique to Ed Wood. He had he just had a weird brain. Nobody would make a movie like Glen or Glendo, which is this plea for tolerance for sexual diversity. With a whole bunch of stock footage. A whole bunch of stock footage <laughs> dressed up as a educational film, but with film noir trappings and also incongruously narrated by Bella Lugosi playing a sort of uh, <laughs> puppet master figure who is in charge of everything. It like To watch a film like Glen or Glenda, that's what Hollywood dreams when it goes to sleep. All of these discarded Hollywood elements, all of these old cliches, all of these out-of-fashion genres, uh, washed-up stars, wannabe stars, L.A. novelty celebrities, they all coexist in the world of Ed Wood. His films truly are Hollywood dreamscapes. So this is the reason I've wanted to do an Ed Wood episode on this show for years, because Will has been developing this thesis about how Ed Wood channels the detritus of Hollywood, the flotsam of Hollywood. You know, in the parlance of this show, you might say Ed Wood is, you know, the capitalist mode of production's greatest bottom feeder. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, if you've ever seen Tommy Wiseau's The Room, which I'm assuming, you know, a a great number of our listeners probably have, you know, you're kind of some way to understanding what makes Ed Wood kind of fascinating as soon as you turn one of his films on anyway. You know, Ed Wood is somebody who, you know, we laughed a lot during this movie. We've watched a few of his films together. We always laugh a lot during them because Ed Wood, you know, like Tommy Wiseau, is somebody who has a a kind of cursory and one-dimensional understanding of the, you know, grammar of film, but he doesn't understand any of the kind of subsequent levels. So what you get is so kind of uncannily discordant and strange. Like throughout this movie, we were struck by how, you know, he has no sense of physical space at all. There are cuts, which in any other movie would indicate that a character is right next to another character, but actually in the world of the film, they're kind of hundreds of meters apart. Or there are so many scenes where the scenes are assembled out of footage shot in wildly different times, like months apart. One of the first scenes of the film is stock footage of Bella Lugosi, who died before the film was actually made. But, you know, footage of him is incorporated. (laughs) Footage of him at a funeral. And it's silent footage, obviously shot very amateurishly for another project. He's in the cemetery, and then it cuts to two grave diggers just sort of waiting for the funeral to be over. And they're clearly not in the same cemetery. They're just in a field somewhere. And then it cuts to Vampira, who's in this studio set that is also supposed to be the cemetery. And it looks completely different. It has this like black backdrop and this very fake shrubbery surrounding her. Yeah, famously, there were graves made of very thin pieces of cardboard that people actually knock over and that made it into the film. And yeah, there's a certain accidental surrealism to watching these three 
very different filming sessions just sort of stitched together. Oh man, it's incredible because in all the scenes that are not in the graveyard, which many of them are just like stock footage or whatever, like stock footage of just like military jeeps or, or planes, you know, in the sky or something like that. In all those scenes, like, you know how stock footage looks. They all look like that. It's always daytime. There's just this very generic kind of vibe you get you know, visual sort of vibe you get from them. The graveyard looks completely different. It's it's obviously on a stage. There's like a big black curtain that you can see the ripples in it behind. The graveyard is the key setting. We return there again and again. Even the graveyard is visually discordant because Wood periodically will cut in these shots of a graveyard that he's obviously shot somewhere completely different where it's like always nighttime in the actual graveyard, but then all of a sudden you see Bella Lugosi just walking menacingly towards the camera in this graveyard that's like, all lit up and is clearly somewhere completely different. You can see through the trees, there's a gap in the trees and there's like a highway behind with cars driving <laughs> on it. There's a narrative and a visual surrealism to a film like this that really do allow it to transcend a traditional B-movie. And it's for that reason that I've always been really irritated by the sort of billing this movie has long had as the worst movie of all time. Because look, it's not a good movie. Obviously, it's not a good movie. Ed Wood is not a good filmmaker. But well, he... I like it, but go ahead. <laughs> but he... <laughs> but he had you know he has a distinctive voice and no one else would make a film like this sounds like a good movie to me <laughs> yeah i mean when you say that he has sort of a basic elementary understanding of film he's somebody who clearly loves movies he grew up loving bella lugosi horror movies and b westerns uh, and he's got the stars of those movies in this movie but every scene feels like the idea of a scene that would be in a different possibly more <laughs> polished movie like there's a scene like not even one of the really funny scenes of the movie that's at the pentagon where lyle Talbot plays like you know Colonel whatever, and he's it's talking like, to the other. It's colonel. like supposed to be that you know because obviously the film it's Plan Nine from Outer Space, so there's like aliens that are that are you know coming. People are doing you know there's flying saucer sightings, and this is like supposed to be a room at the Pentagon that's like I don't know the the space uh, situation room or something. Everything about the way the mise-en-scene in this room is set up is is absolutely incredible. Well, yeah, because you've got he's got a desk, and on the wall behind him is a map of the United States. <laughs> because sure, why not? And then behind the him, sec- the secret intelligence you can only find at the Pentagon. Behind him, there's a globe, and on his desk are a number of like model spacecrafts, and there's another desk that it's like has a picture of a galaxy. Yeah, it's just a random a, galaxy. Pictures of galaxies on the wall, and on another desk there are like model spaceships <laughs> and you're thinking why does this guy at the pentagon have this stuff how does this how does any of this help him and it's just because edward is kind of like and you know you can say oh edward didn't have the budget for a more realistic set but no it's it's not that because there are many more resourceful filmmakers who could create a more realistic or a more convincing Pentagon set with the same resources that Ed Wood had. No, he was just like, well, what would I you have a map on the wall? You know, the movie is full of scenes that are kind of like, this is the kind of scene that you would have in this movie. And as a result, you just get this unrelenting flow. Like even in the first just 15 minutes, there's like seven different locations that you're at. And there's kind of multiple genres that he's inadvertently evoking 
thing. Like, there's one part where I think, you know, there's some, like, awareness, early awareness of the aliens or something, and it just cuts to a police station that we've never seen before. And then there's sort of this gen- very generic sequence of, like... The cops are getting out, and they're going into their yeah. cars while the music is blaring. The music is swelling, and the and the, the thin blue line are on the case right. or whatever. And that <laughs> sequence only lasts about, like, five or six seconds or whatever. Oh, it lasts longer than that. <laughs> <laughs> but the movie is just replete with these things, you know, obviously exacerbated by the constant uh, use of stock footage that, you know, he had to use because he couldn't scrape a budget together to actually film the stuff himself. But the film is just replete with all these kind of different idioms that he's like inadvertently plucking from the most generic parts of different genres. Yeah, so like that scene you describe, it's like, well, we got to have a scene where the cops are on the case. Uh-huh. They're on the case. Probably my favorite sequence in the movie is the one where the flying saucers come down over LA. Oh, God. Everything is so funny about this because, you know, there's like this shot of people driving down a highway in Los Angeles, pointing it out the window at nothing in particular and it cuts to these flying saucers that like you can literally see the strings yeah and they're flying right over la the scale is completely off they're like dwarfing the skyscrapers (laughs) because they're just being hung over like a photo of los angeles or something and then after wood's shown you this he's shown you this in the daytime and then he's shown you this in the nighttime the flying saucers are still coming down they're coming down one of the buildings they fly over is like the nbc building and then having shown you all this he shows you the front page of the Hollywood Chronicle and it's like extra extra flying saucers spotted over LA and then having shown you this cover he then cuts to various people who are like phoning the cops to say that there are flying saucers in the sky and it's like it's on the front page of the paper I think the cops know about it well yeah but then the next scene is Colonel Edwards leads the army to attack the flying saucers he leads an army attack and that and that too of course is just footage plucked for it's just well, the most generic rockets being fired from the ground and like it's the most generic it's cutting back and forth between like the flying saucers on strings and actual military (laughs) stock footage but then colonel edwards is then talking with one of his soldiers and the colonel edwards is saying you know flying saucers are still just a rumor officially (laughs) today's exercise was just a little practice firing on the clouds and then he also says those flying saucers we tried to reason with them but they destroyed a town a town of people people who died and then he's like wow it was covered up by army Brass. He says it was just a small town. Yeah. It was, it was covered up by the upper echelon. Yeah, that, that, that's right. It's like, first, the previous scene just established that these saucers are just out in the open over Hollywood. It's on the front page of the newspaper. These saucers are no longer a rumor. And they have also destroyed a town, but all that was covered up, and for the rest of the movie we're constantly being told, that, oh no, the deep state is is keeping this a secret. Nobody nobody can talk about this. Nobody yeah. can say anything. Yeah, somehow, somehow like flying saucers literally attacking the city of Los Angeles is being relegated to like a Roswell like conspiracy <laughs> and, and that's because Edward like understands the kinds of scenes that he wants in the movie he wants a scene where the military officials very gravely say now flying saucers are just a rumor officially he wants a scene where the heroic manly pilot is like 
I saw a flying saucer, but I've been muzzled by army brass. I can't even admit I saw the thing. Yeah, but then the problem is he also wants a scene where the flying saucers yeah. dramatically attack a major urban area. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And these are the two kinds of scenes he wants in the movie, and he can't quite, <laughs> can't figure out really so, how to so make So they're them. both going in the movie. <laughs> Ultimately, that is the guiding ethos of this film. It's going in the movie. If he's got it, it's going in the movie. This is the thing I love. <laughs> More than anything about Ed Wood is if he has it, he will find space for it. Glenn or Glenda was a perfect example of this. It's this quasi-documentary about sexual diversity. But he had Bella Lugosi, so it's like, let's get Bella Lugosi to narrate it from, like, a mad scientist laboratory and just do a horror thing on top of it. Because he's got it, you know? Let's let's put it in. And this movie, Plan 9 from Outer Space, very much does the same thing. Because it's two kind of foundational, like, structuring genres are one, like, cheesy 1950s alien invasion kind of movies. But then also, like, zombie and horror movies. Like, that's what The Graveyard is all about. Now, there there's an interesting story as well before we get into the plot. Because, of course, this movie originally was famously Grave Robbers from Outer Space. Why wasn't Ed Wood allowed to call it that, Will? I should say there are a lot of conflicting reports about this. But the facts of the case are that a lot of this movie was financed by the Baptist Church of Beverly Hills. <laughs> Edward's landlord at the time was a very active member of the congregation. He was a guy named Edward Reynolds who had come to Hollywood called by God to make biblical epics. He had seen the Ten Commandments and he was like, this is what I want to do with my life. I want to make biblical epics. But he, you know, he he didn't he didn't have any connections in Hollywood. He didn't know how to make movies. He did have a certain amount of money though. And so he was Edward's landlord, and Edward said, Biblical epics, that's great, very noble work. But to get money for it, first, you should do some surefire commercial projects. You should make some exploitation films. You should make something in a proven genre, like, oh, here's this script that I have. And I also have never-before-seen footage of the late Bela Lugosi, my friend. And so Edward Reynolds was very excited about that. I've got some hot footage of Bela Lugosi leaving a house, looking at some <laughs> flowers very, like, sadly, and then walking off camera. Ed Reynolds, the producer, is like, I'm going to be the producer of Bela Lugosi's last movie. <laughs> That's so exciting. And he was. So they made this film. It was shot in 1956. The most famous story is that Ed Wood and certain members of the cast were apparently baptized to get in the good graces of the church. That apparently actually did happen. It's like Napoleon going to Egypt and, and promising to convert to Islam. I mean, the famous story is that the Baptists didn't like the title Grave Robbers from Outer Space. They thought it was sacrilegious. I think the preacher who's in the film has denied that. But I mean, I don't know. It could be true. Might not be true. It's hard to tell sometimes with these stories from like people who lived 60 years ago and were drunk at the time. Well, and also, you know, the story of Ed Wood and, and the making of Plan 9 from Outer Space has kind of been officially canonized through, among other things, the Tim Burton movie, Ed Wood, which is a great movie, but obviously represents the insertion of Ed Wood into kind of official Hollywood canon, which, you know, even though that's a great movie, I don't think it does justice to the life of this guy who was just like a bottom feeder in Hollywood for decades. But getting back to that guiding ethos of the film, the ethos of like, if I have it, it's going in the movie. I like that the cast of this movie is evenly divided between faded stars, people like Lyle Talbot, who used to be a Warner Brothers contract player in the early 30s. 
Tom Keen, who used to be a cowboy star. Wait, wait, stop, stop right there. The first guy you said, what, what was your Humphrey Bogart story <laughs> about him? There's a great movie called Three on a Match. It's from the early 30s. Warner Brothers put it out. And there's a scene I love in that movie. It's one of Humphrey Bogart's first movies. You know, an hour into the movie, the Lyle Talbot character is deep in debt. And this gangster comes up from behind him, you know, stick him up. You know, I'm taking you to meet the big cheese, that kind of thing. And it's Humphrey Bogart. <laughs> and Humphrey Bogart immediately lights up the frame you see humphrey bogart in this movie three on a match and you're like oh well that guy's a star and i just love this as a symbolic moment it's like lyle talbot was being groomed for stardom but he just didn't quite have it and then along comes humphrey bogart who you know pulls a gun on him and he's like i'll take it from here lyle (laughs) and he goes on to become you know one of hollywood's greatest stars and lyle talbot is in plan nine from outer space Yeah, he's in casablanca (laughs) yeah uh so yeah you've got you know him tom keen bella lugosi you've got people from ed wood's entourage like one of his ex-wives is in this film people like paul marco who played the character the bumbling comedy relief character of kelton the cop in three movies okay so this is another reason i badly want to discuss ed wood (laughs) and also also this movie in particular will sloan believe it or not my co-host is interviewed i believe the count is three members of the cast of this movie that was made in 1956 all of whom have since passed away i'm afraid but yes i spoke to paul marco conrad brooks and uh, one of the extras, uh, a man named Johnny Duncan, who played Robin in a Batman serial. Uh, but he plays uh, just a guy carrying a stretcher in one scene. Okay, so will Kelton the Cop walk us through the, oh, <laughs> the Kelton the Cop universe? All right, so Paul Marco, another, you know, Hollywood character, an aspiring actor in Hollywood. He ended up being in three Ed Wood movies because I guess he had some money. I think he probably inherited a bit of money. And he played this hilarious comedy relief character and all of them and obviously he didn't become a star the popular story is that in the 1980s paul marco had worked at paramount in the prop department for many years decades and joe dante the filmmaker was making a movie at paramount and so paul marco heard this he heard joe dante was a fan of ed wood and he said if you like playing eye from outer space do you like kelton the cop joe dante says oh yeah yeah i love kelton the cop well, pleased to meet you. I'm Kelton the Cop. And Joe Dante says, "Oh, wow, you're a real, you're a cult star, Paul Marco. You should you should go on the convention circuit, you know? Like those movies are really popular now. You could you could make some money off that." And Paul Marco responded to that by quitting his job at Paramount. <laughs> so dark. He started a store. Well, he started a, a business. He had a ton of I love Kelton the Cop t-shirts. I love Kelton the Cop balloons. I love Kelton the Cop, like just merch, merch out his ears, spent so much of his savings on it. He was constantly saying, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to make a new Kelton TV show, a new Kelton movie. Uh, he, he ran the Paul Marco fan club, which I don't know if it ever had a member, but he on the book ran it he was so convinced that the kelton renaissance was happening kelton was a brand and it was coming back (laughs) i hope and dream that one day i'll be able to meet joe dante because that's the one story that's the one thing i would ask him i would like to confirm that this actually happened huge kelton digression i'm glad we i'm glad we could do that uh so yeah you've got these people that edward knew just people in his entourage And then there's another category in this film of Hollywood novelty celebrities, just strange people about town. The movie opens and closes with monologues by Criswell, who was a popular psychic at the time. You have seen this incident based on sworn testimony. Can you prove that it didn't happen? 
Perhaps on your way home, someone will pass you in the dark, and you will never know it, for they will be from outer space. He very generously agreed to do the opening monologue for this episode as well. Yeah, yeah, it was incredible to get him in the studio. And like his shtick was he would do these outrageous predictions like, I predict the end of the world will happen in 1999, you know, that kind of thing. And then there's Tor Johnson, the 400 pound Swedish wrestler who's in the film. There's Vampyra, who is a TV hostess who was on for like a year. Vampyra famously inspired El. Elvira. Oh, and maybe one of my favorite people in the movie, John Bunny Breckenridge. <laughs> I was I was going to bring him up because, you know, this guy really stands out in the movie. Like, periodically, one of the reasons I love watching B-movies is because periodically they'll feature, you know, just one actor who's kind of just a cut above all the others and is able to take dirt and kind of weave it into, if not gold, a substance that's certainly superior to dirt. Ah, yes, Plan 9 deals with the resurrection <laughs> of the dead. Long-distance electrodes into the pineal and pituitary <laughs> glands of the recent dead. This guy leans into his ridiculous lines so well. On our last episode, I talked about uh, watching the movie Werewolf, this classic B movie. I forgot to bring up that that guy has an actor. I'm forgetting his name, but like clearly a Shakespearean trained actor who's in this uh, this episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation that I really like called Gambit, and he really stands out in the in the movie Werewolf because he just has a kind of presence about him. Like his dialogue is awful, but he just has that aura which some actors and actresses have. Where kind of regardless of like what they actually have to do or say their mere being in a room just enhances the quality of the space around them this guy john brackenridge very much fulfills that role in playing nine from outer space and as you told me uh he was also kind of an interesting guy he was a longtime friend and correspondent of gore vidal's among other things and also i believe uh, a descendant of a former u.s vice president yes he was uh, a descendant of vice president john c Breckenridge, who served in the Jefferson Davis administration. <laughs> also possibly the inspiration for Gore Vidal's character, Myra Breckenridge. Uh, that has been speculated because the two of them did apparently correspond. John Bunny Breckenridge was this kind of Hollywood character. I'm referring to him as him because that is, as I understand, how he identified until the day that he died. Although he would constantly talk about his plans to get sex reassignment surgery, which of course was a you know very provocative thing to say back in the 1950s he was constantly talking about he was going to do this very soon so i mean who knows how he would identify if he were alive right now although he did live to like 1996 i think like he lived long enough to see bill murray play him in a movie which and, is and longer than ed wood who i who died i think in his early 50s in the in the late 70s right? yeah ed wood didn't live long enough to see he didn't really live long enough to see the renaissance surrounding his films although i think he did live long enough to get a sort of a sense of it because this movie plan nine from outer space was constantly playing on los angeles tv it was very cheap. It may have even fallen into the public domain. And so a whole generation of kids, a whole generation of night owls, kids who liked Bella Lugosi, boomer kids, would constantly be stumbling on this movie late at night and, and a kind of cults developed around it. 
in the 70s, there was this wave of books that was published about Bela Lugosi, because Lugosi was this subject of great cult fascination. And of course, they would always disparage. Well, it's, I don't know, it's interesting to read those books because they're, they're written before the Edward movies became what they are now. So they would kind of dismiss them, but they wouldn't call them the worst movie of all time. They'd just be like, oh, you know, Bride of the Monster. You know, he's really rising above his material in that film. Anyway, I think the point I wanted to make on this is, you know, you can imagine, just forget the whole worst movie ever made hype around these movies, and just imagine being some boomer kid who's just stumbled on this very strange artifact on TV, just trying to make sense of it, because I do think there's a a strange beauty to this film, particularly the cemetery scenes. Absolutely. And, And for a movie that is such a pastiche and very arbitrary pastiche of just like different kinds of stock footage Ed Wood was able to get together and have financed by this church in Hollywood... The film has kind of a greater imagination, maybe by accident, or I don't know what you think about that, but maybe by accident than sort of the median sci-fi <laughs> or horror film from the 1950s. Well, I think it's fair to say the plot doesn't exactly hang together for all the reasons that we cited earlier. I mean, oh, well, I mean, just to cite another thing, th- these aliens want to raise an army of the dead to take on the world, and they only raise three people, <laughs> one of whom is an old man. Yeah, I mean, the, doesn't... The, the aliens were a spacefaring species to not achieve a lot in this movie. Their mission is to uh, make contact with humankind and uh, they're unable to do so by conventional means. I guess the, the thesis of the movie is because, you know, they're instantly shot at or whatever. Well, this is what's interesting about the movie. This is where Ed Wood, I think, kind of comes up with an interesting and almost subversive idea because you spend the whole movie following around these, you know, military people or the studly pilot as they're trying to fight these these sinister aliens who have like destroyed a town and done all these things. And then there's the final confrontation on the spaceship at the end where these three lunk-headed Americans are waving guns at these aliens and the aliens are explaining We tried to communicate with you through conventional means. You opened fire on us, so now we have no choice. And the reason, the reason we wanted to contact you is because your juvenile minds, your stupid minds, stupid, stupid, are going to come up with the biggest bomb ever. Like you've already had the atom bomb, you've already had the hydrogen bomb, now you're going to create the solaronite bomb, which is going to explode particles of sunlight setting off a chain reaction that will uh, explode everywhere that the sun reaches, which is the whole universe. And there's an amazing section where he's explained this, and it's a little harebrained, I must admit. (laughs) But he explains this. The alien explains this to the lunk-headed Americans, and uh, the leading man says, well, what if we do develop this solonite bomb? We'd be an even stronger nation than now. (laughs) (laughs) Which is a perfect, stupid, American exceptionalist response to this. And the alien goes, stronger. You see? You see? Your stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. And the leading man says, that's all I'm taking from you. And he punches him in the face. I mean, that's that's wonderful. That's fantastic. As badly written as it is, there's a kernel of an interesting idea. It's like you've spent the whole movie thinking that these aliens are going to commit this genocide on the human race. Um, but, but then they end up being the good they're, guys. They're the good guys. They're the good guys. And they're, they're not the evil empire. They're not the Russians the enemy is us and as to the film's beauty i mean we spend so much time in that cemetery we're constantly returning to the cemetery as if by force and the cemetery set is obviously just this indoor it could be like 20 feet wide and five feet deep 
characters are constantly walking. They're like, oh, let's go over there. And then it cuts to them just in the same place, like walking into the same place they were. Or someone will be running away from like, you know, a reanimated corpse or something. And you'll see them go through like the same part, just shot at a slightly different angle over and over again. Um, But so, you know, it's fake and you know, it's a small set, but you never see the corners of the set. You're just in this black void, this very stylized black void. And like, if you spend enough time in that black void, it becomes your reality. You can't see outside this. So it is reality, essentially. And you almost start to take it on its own terms. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and there's this uncanny otherworldly quality that develops. It's like being in a dream. Yeah, this is something I think that the Tim Burton film, Ed Wood, captures really well. You know, I have mixed feelings about Tim Burton, but I think that's probably my favorite of his films. I feel like he really got Ed Wood's aesthetic and he did a lot to honor it. And he really understood these aspects of it that you've described. Mm-hmm. The greatest compliment he pays Ed Wood is that he takes a lot of stylistic inspiration from him. He really does force you to see the beauty that is there. Why a particle of sunlight can't even be seen or measured. Can you see or measure an atom? Yet you can explode one. A ray of sunlight is made up of many atoms. So what if we do develop this solanite bomb? We'd be even a stronger nation than now. Strong. You see? You see? You're stupid minds. Stupid. Stupid. That's all I'm taking from you. Get back here, you fool! Let him finish. Before we recorded, after we finished watching Plan 9 from Outer Space, I showed Luke about five or ten minutes from another Ed Wood film, one of his last films, a movie called Necromania, A Tale of Weird Love from 1971. Ed Wood did spend his life as this kind of like L.A. bottom feeder. And after the sort of exploitation movies he was making in the 50s started to disappear, where else was there for him to go but uh, sex films? In the 70s, he largely supported himself writing sleazy adult novels and directing pornography. And Necromania is a porn film. It's a hardcore porn film. No two ways about it. It's It's got the stuff in it. But I love Necromania because it's an Ed Wood film, too. And it's even cheaper than Plan 9 from Outer Space. Substantially cheaper, the, I would the, say. The dialogue sounds like it's right out of Plan 9 from Outer Space. It's incredible. Like, these... these porn stars are in it and they're just they're just talking like they're Lyle Talbot. I suspect stars is being generous. <laughs> Not a fan of Renee Bond. Uh, <laughs> d- disappointing. Uh, it's obviously filmed in like a motel. It looks horrible. But, you know, he's doing what he can with the motel. He's got a skeleton. He's, he's got a coffin. It's about this frigid couple who have come to this uh, sex salon, basically, that, that's run by a mystic in hopes of reviving their dormant <laughs> love life. It reminded me a lot of that movie Manos, The Hands of Fate. Oh, very much so. (laughs) Very much so. And there's that scene at the end where, like, Madame Heels, the lady who runs the center, she rises from her coffin. And I don't know, it's just got all the Edward stuff. This is why he's an artist. The style is still there. The preoccupations are still there. The particular poetry of the dialogue (laughs) is still there. Uh, And and it's a, a porn film. We watched the first few minutes of it, and it was so surreal after watching Plan 9 from Outer Space, which, while admittedly is not the worst movie of all time, I mean... It's not professional, exactly. It's not professional, it's pretty bad, and yet this made it look like Ingmar Bergman or Fellini or something. I think I said after, like, the first 45 seconds... This isn't the bottom of the barrel. This is like multiple subalterns like beneath the mock under the bottom of the barrel. You're, you're so naive, Luke. This isn't even the bottom of the barrel. It goes so much further below this. 
We shouldn't be doing this. A fuzz might consider it to be breaking and entering. Sometimes I think you're more of an old woman than my mother. I just don't like to think of going to jail. We're invited guests. Then where's the invitee? I'll be quiet and close the door. Any minute, I expect Bella Lugosi is Dracula. Well, the financing just fell through for the third time on Don Quixote. Do you know I can't believe it? That sounds just exactly like my problems. It's the damn money, men. You never know who's a windbag and who's got the goods. And then they all think they're directors. Ain't that the truth? Do you know that I've even had producers recut my movies? I hate when that happens. And they're always trying to cast their buddies. It doesn't even matter if they're right for the part. Tell me about it. I'm supposed to do a thriller at Universal. But they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. Mr. Wells, is it all worth it? It is when it works. You know, the one film of mine where I had total control, Kane, the studio hated it, but they didn't get to touch a frame. Ed. Yes? Visions are worth fighting for. Why spend your life making someone else's dreams? <laughs>